And so I finished dress rehearsal while in labor in a bed at the hospital. And I was pissed. They wouldn't let me. I was like, I, I've given birth. I know this will take a few hours. <laughs> I just want to finish this scene. <laughs> I was hormonal. Um, but I, like my, the, I, some of those students are now working and they're like, I remember when you directed the show from <laughs> the hospital bed. And I was like, labor takes a long time. Welcome to episode four of Find Your Light, the podcast that helps women in theater take center stage in lives they love. I'm your host and the audience member who laughs at the weirdest parts of your show, Emily Stamets. Question for you today, how often does fear get in the way of you doing your best work? Fear of failure, of judgment, of excommunication. How often does it stop you in your tracks? How often does it clog up the pipeline between you and your muse? Those fears are all ego-based. Ego is the part of us that's all about me, me, me. It wants to be recognized, to win prizes, to be noticed and hugged, to be lauded and praised. Ego is what compels us to share the shiniest bits of our lives on Instagram. Ego can be shitty. We all know someone kind of terrible who is egotistical or egomaniacal. What we often forget, though, is that ego plays a very important role. It's there to keep us safe. Not physically safe, because goodness knows there's a ton of broken bones out there in the world because someone decided to, like, jump off a cliff, right? No. Ego is about staying psychologically safe, particularly around our sense of belonging. Belonging is a survival factor that is as important as food, shelter, and water. Because in the way back times, if you didn't belong to a group, you would die. Simple as that. Which is why peer pressure works so well. Our lizard brain literally thinks that if Dana doesn't like you in sixth grade, you're going to die alone in the wilderness. That's where ego comes from. And that's what it does for us. It is constantly monitoring our place in the group to make sure that we're accepted and that we have a place. Ego boasts about accomplishments because it needs the village to know you have value so they don't kick you out. Ego can also keep you overly humble so you don't get kicked out for being obnoxiously boastful. Ego stops you from ruffling feathers or questioning the status quo too loudly. Ego assumes that everyone else is talking about you because it needs to make sure that they're saying nice things. Ego is all me, me, me to help you survive, which is great unless ego is preventing you from creating the beautifully unique bit of work with a capital W that is yours to create in the world because it's afraid of all that judgment and feather ruffling and wilderness. Ego whispers, you're not ready yet. Ego says, no one wants your play, your book, your song. Ego asks, who do you think you are? I don't know about you, but ego pops up for me all the freaking time. And I'm not like an expert. I mean, okay, I'm kind of an expert, but I have a really simple phrase for you that works to quiet down my ego every single time. Here it is. It's not about me. So simple. It's not about me. Ego pops up when it thinks that my work in the world is about me gaining recognition, about me earning trillions of dollars, about me being liked and lauded and loved. But really, my best work comes from a place of service. In that simple phrase, it's not about me, helps me to remember that. What you are creating is not about you. 
It's about the people or even just one person who will be touched by your work. It's about the way that you're helping the environment or organizational structures or a community. Your work is about braiding together all the strands of what has come before you and creating something that will continue even after you've touched it. It's not about you. It's about the brilliant change that you are a conduit for. My conversation today is with a woman who embodies this transition from what has come before into what comes next. Kaya Dunn is an associate professor of theater and teaches acting at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, as well as being an actor, director, and activist. Her research targets reshaping pedagogy for theater students of color, as well as decolonization and equity, diversity, and inclusion issues in theater and their application in academic, professional, and corporate settings. This year, she is joining theatrical intimacy education as an associate faculty specializing in EDI issues. She's performed in over 40 shows and was an associate artist at both Moxie Theater and Lambs Players in San Diego. Now, in our conversation, we use the initialism EDI, which stands for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. Also know that there's a content warning for one description of lynching violence in the course of our conversation. Kaya Dunn, how are you today? I'm good. I'm really good, actually. We, um, we opened a show two days ago, and so I am, I am done with that. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, it's, it's incredible. We sold out uh, three nights ago. Oh, my gosh. And the playwright is coming up. Um, Pro Clegg is coming up on Sunday. And tonight we're doing a talk on Harlem Renaissance Women as Revolutionaries. Um, an author I know who does a book on freedom narratives is doing that talk. And so it's been really awesome just to sort of bring like this part of African-American culture to both the students. And we've had a lot of uh, members of the community involved just because Proclaig such a beloved playwright. <laughs> and so, yeah, and it's a play I've been carrying around for almost 16 years. Like I, I read it in, I think I read it in high school. Um, and then have always been in love with it, but it was sort of the age of Mamet and Shepard and um, Kushner. And so a black woman writing, you know, about women's rights and the Harlem Renaissance, it was celebrated, but I don't think it got sort of the wildfire. It like, we're seeing a lot more of that work being produced widely now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's just, but for me, it was, I mean, it was that play when people talk about the play that sort of changed your trajectory and changed your life and what you thought about theater. It was this play for me. So Um, it's the first time I've directed it. I've done scenes for it for like showcases and things before. And um, actually half, I think most of the female faculty at my school are teaching it in different classes. So we've used it in costume design Mm. and directing and um, because it's a really, it's a well-structured play. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also like our costume designer has been focusing a lot on making sure that our students can work on diverse bodies and render diversity right from the beginning of the process so that when they present to a director, they're presenting um, people of different abilities and thinking about like, how do you design this costume in a wheelchair or um, racially diverse, body size diverse. So not all the people are the same. And um, yeah, so it's just been, it's, it's really, really fulfilling right now. (laughs) And what's the title of the play? 
Uh, it plays Blues for an Alabama Sky. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm so excited about that for you. How does it feel to sort of come full circle in that way, to have the play that, that like changed you to be directing it? Uh, I think I will realize it more when I'm not quite so tired. <laughs> we've been rehearsing. Um, our school has like this really amazing design process. Um, so like our, our set designer, Tom Birch is amazing. Like he's, there's things that people can't even see except for the actors. So there's like Madam CJ Walker, hot oil on the stage, but there's a lot of, there's just a lot of work involved in that. And then my students are all doing their showcase, which I'm also directing in two days. And then I head to China on the 15th. So I think when I breathe, I will feel very, <laughs> um, sort of wonderful. And on Sunday, I'm actually uh, doing the panel with Pearl and some um, mentors that I and and fellow people who are in a Black women's or a women of color writing group that I'm part of on campus. And so I think when that circle comes together, I will be like, oh yeah, this is this is what we were meant to do. But um, yeah, right now I'm just sort of like, catch my breath. Okay, so Kaya, um, oh my gosh, thank you again for taking time out of the middle of, like you just opened a show, you've got a showcase, going, there's all these things happening. So thank you for taking time. Um, let's start by, tell us a little bit about how you got started in theater. What was, like, if you remember the moment where you were like, yes, this is yeah. what you're doing. And then a little bit of the journey from that moment to where you are today. Sure. So um, I actually, like one of the few pieces of childhood memorabilia my mother saved is a three-year-old doctor's appointment where the doctor was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, an actor or a lawyer. And my mom was like, oh, that's cute. <laughs> um, and then I was like, no, I really want to do theater. And um, I came of age when arts were being cut for the first time in Massachusetts. So the late 80s, early 90s. They went back to like all public school needs to provide is reading, writing, and arithmetic. And so like all of our arts programs were cut and that continued. Um, we moved from Boston to North Carolina uh, right as I was starting middle school, which was fairly miserable <laughs> because I didn't sound like anyone or look like any. I mean, it was just, it was an awkward transition anyway. Um, and so my parents, uh, to make it my mother and my stepfather to make it a little easier were like, well, they have this special North Carolina school, of the arts, if you get to be a senior and you still want to do it and you get in. Um, and they made me that promise thinking that I probably wouldn't get in because they only accept 20 students and only 10 from in state. And so like literally through the misery of middle school and some of high school, I was like senior year, I'm going to school, of the arts. <laughs> um, and then uh, I got, in. Um, and so then they couldn't back out on a six year promise. <laughs> so, um, that really helped. But before that, there is uh, in Durham, North Carolina, in the basement of the Arts Council, sort of shoved in the corner, is this tiny theater company called Young People's Performing Company that I think is now like 40 years old that is literally run off the willpower of one woman. And so our family was really. Uh, we, we were, I guess, income challenged when I was younger. We did not have a lot of money. Um, and I was like, I'm going to do theater. And there was no theater program at my high school. And so I, this is back when people had phone books. Um, I opened up the phone book and looked for theaters. And I saw this theater. And I called this woman, Jeffrin, and um, my family couldn't afford the cost of the camp or tuition. But my mom um, 
sews. And so my mother made costumes for the first summer camp and that got me my tuition. And then I volunteered at like 14. I was helping with the kindergarten classes and I spent the next three years like making theater with other kids who like the friends that I still have today. I just went on vacation uh, a couple years ago with one of them, uh, a guy that I've stayed friends with and his family and his wife and I are now friends. And I go to New York and I still see this little circle that I found when I was 14. Um, and this woman on like no money has had such an impact. I mean, we were 14 and 15 and doing plays that people would argue were probably wildly inappropriate for us. So we were doing Brad. <laughs> we did Marat Saad when I was 15. Oh <laughs> um, but it was so much fun and no one told us it was supposed to be serious or important. And like, it was a place to breathe and to belong. And I like that feeling never left me. And it was actually really hard in college because all of a sudden these playwrights that I had learned to love through their stories I found out all this other stuff and that they were supposed to be hard and intimidating. And I, you know, I, I'd come from this place of like theater is this way to create community. Um, and so that never really left me. Undergrad was really hard because I was one of a very few students of color. Um, I was in the first black show our school ever did. We did Raisin in the Sun. Um, but it introduced me to a, a, a director in town, Rano J. Parson in Chicago, who got me involved in black activism around the city and around Chicago and sort of connected me into this, this world of black theater um, in a way that was exciting. And so I kind of struggled and floundered with that. And then after I graduated, I got a job in California doing touring and then went to Vancouver and then went to New York and um, came uh, I went to LA for a while. So all that time I was doing applied theater. So um, I would do sort of what I guess you'd consider standard shows at night. But during the day we were touring schools, doing sex ed shows. So I did the middle school, which again, like middle school and me horrifying. Um, (laughs) And it was actually what was really, it was sort of a redemptive thing because I did it once with this company in San Diego and the focus was more on bullying and um, growing up multiracial and divorce. Um, But in both shows, we worked with psychologists and counseled kids after. Mm -hmm. Um, And middle schoolers are a lot less scary when you're not 12. (laughs) Yeah. Although um, they're like, I still sometimes get nervous when I'm around like a really pretty middle school age girl. Like my inner middle school child is just like terrified and intimidated. It's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) No. And that was the, I think what was beautiful though, was like, all the kids that were like me were able to open up and you don't share that when you're in middle school. And so I found myself after shows talking to kids who were in the middle of like really tough family things or, um, you know, just being ostracized or, you know, and we had some really tragic things happen to my family when I was that age. And I was able to look at them honestly and be like seventh grade was the worst year of my life. Like I was in my twenties and I'm like, I'm now 20 something And seventh grade was still the worst year of my life. So that's to say that this gets better. Like it gets so much better and you're not crazy and I'm not minimizing it. Like this actually is one of the hardest periods you will go through. And I still, you know, and so to be able to say that and to, you know, to see the kids open up that way and just to sort of see the power of theater. I didn't know that there was a term for what we were doing. I was just like, again, oh, this is making a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I had been in um, in undergrad, a 
professor that I really looked up to and admired, um, I went to him and I was like, hey, there's this like circus that tours Ethiopia and, and educates about AIDS and I want to do that. And he said to me, well, you need to decide whether you want to be an actor or a social worker. And so I didn't know that there was a whole field of study. <laughs> yes, yes, right? Um, and so there's a couple things in that. One is like, I, I do think I came of age in a time where the, the philosophy was break you down to build you up, especially with my male teachers, which is most of what I had. I, I was trained with some wonderful teachers, but almost all of them were white male. I never had a black teacher. I definitely never had a woman of color. Um, and this is undergrad, conservatory in high school, and graduate school. Mm-hmm. And so for me, even the act of, you know, I teach now at UNC Charlotte, and the act of teaching, just the fact that I'm in the room mm-hmm. says something that I never got to have. But also what I've discovered is I've like joined the Black Theater Network or the Black Theater Association is I don't know a Black artist scholar who does not deal in some way with social justice. It's sort of in the DNA of like theaters viewed as an art, but also as a tool. And I think it's in the DNA of our culture. And so, um, you know, I think when people talk about representation, they think about optics, but the other thing is that, that it brings a differing perspective of what art means because it means different things to different cultures. And even within like, I'm very much an American and within American culture, but I'm a black American. And what does that mean in terms of storytelling and, and the tether I feel to other parts of my community? Um, and so, so yeah, it took a couple of years to realize that that was a uh, horse poop and, um, <laughs> you can say shit. I don't okay. know what I'm allowed to say. <laughs> allowed okay, to great. Say. <laughs> horse shit. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So then I, um, I met after I, I met up with this group in San Diego called Moxie theater in their first year. And mm-hmm. the artistic director was a black woman who was a mother and a feminist and they were doing shows in like elementary schools and all over the place, but they did it because uh, American theater had just had a year where out of all the Lord theaters, only 10 female playwrights were being produced right. like in total. And, you know, this is the advent of the Kilroy list. And, um, and so uh, Delicia was, uh, was like, yeah, we're going to fix that. And she and Jen Thorne and two other women got together and started Moxie. And um, I was in, two shows that first season. But what that did for me was also to show me like, Oh, here's what happens. I'd always wanted to be an actor, but then I started to see like, Oh, when you can direct and you can produce, here's the power that you have. Um, That's important. Here's what happens when we tell stories about women and people of color that aren't based in stereotypes or trauma um, solely. Right. Like that's what happens. Here's what happens when we tell our own stories instead of letting other people define us. Mm -hmm. And also like now there's this whole parent art movement. But like in 2006, I was watching women with babies up at two o'clock in the morning, painting sets and making costumes and winning awards against major regional theaters on $500 budgets. And so when it came time for me to have a family, I have three boys, um, I I had had an example set out before me and I'd see all these other people and I still get asked like, Oh, I don't know how you do theater and have a family. And I feel really lucky that at the time when I came of age, I was around a group of people who thought it was normal um, and hard, but like normalized that in, in this little tiny 
sort of world for me. And so then I started when I, when I branched out and started working at other theaters, I brought my son with me. And so my son would come to sound checks and he actually came to a much bigger theater and told the artistic director, this isn't a real theater. And I said, what are you talking about? He's like, real theaters have toys behind the box office and there are things for me to play with. And he was like three or four. And I was, I mean, I was a little embarrassed, but then I was really proud. And the next day that theater got toys. And now there's a ton of parents in that theater. Oh my gosh, And so I was like, yeah, it's like my little activist son who like still goes and like says his feelings and it's really hard to raise him because he'll argue with me too. But I mean, I think I was like, okay, so this is how change happens because what's normal for this child, it's not a special program. It's people saying, screw this, this is how we're going to do it. And so that also really informed like the way that I, I um, am visible about being a parent, um, about my blackness in a way that I necessarily wasn't because I think I was sort of um, raised and trained as a lot of women are, and especially a, um, a lot of women of color to like make sure that I, I didn't upset anybody too much to make sure that I was doing better and I was respectable. And um, I think it got to a point where I was like, wow, this isn't changing things as fast as I like. So what happens if, you know, I'm not disagreeable necessarily, but like, this is who I am. And I know that this can be done and I'm going to do my work and parent my children. And I'm going to mention them occasionally, um, you know, and, and, and then like what that does for my students, like I have white male students who I've brought in artistic directors who have kids. And that's the question that they want to know, like, how have you had a family? Mm-hmm. And I remember training and being told, like, if you love anything more than this, you shouldn't do this. Yeah, And that's a very like narrow perspective. And women struggle later in life because they put it off because they were told, I mean, a really good friend of mine was told, Oh, you're ruining your career when she had her daughter. And it's like, what kind of like, who, who's making these rules? (laughs) I don't want to play by them. Uh, And so, you know, and, and there's definitely things that have been sacrificed to that. Um, But I also think like, if, if we're going to continue to move forward, like there are women who have been doing this for a really long time. Like I think about, Dr. Barbara Antier, who founded National Black Theater, who had a daughter in the 80s. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. So it's been done. It's just not been celebrated. And it, um, and now, you know, there, there, we have social media and we have more people doing it. But for me, it's always like, well, let's call back to who has been doing this for a really long time with very little support. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> it sounds like a lot of your experience, um, you, has, you've been really fortunate that you've been exposed to, you know, theaters that have kids, um, you know, people working, working moms, like all, you know, all of that. Do you think that's, is it more of chance or do you, was there something that like drew you into, um, like spaces where you're using art for like as social work, right. Using art for social change, um, spaces that are more, um, you know, like black spaces, um, spaces that have working moms, did you feel pulled yeah, to it? Or what, do you think it was just pure chance that you were exposed to those things? Those are the people who recognize my potential. Like, I think it really was a, there's a, when I talk about like being rooted in the culture, there's a, you know, you, you teach one, you reach up for one. Um, so there's definitely like a strong ethos, um, particularly among black women and then also women of color and then women. Um, 
but that you, but especially among black women that like somebody made a space for me, I'm going to make a space for somewhere else, someone else. And so I think, you know, again, when we talk about representation in the theater, I know white men who are like, I hired this guy because he reminds me of myself. Mm -hmm. And so what that does is if the only people who are getting chances are people who are resonating with people's stories it means even if they're casting or doing diverse work, it means they're doing the diverse work that resonates with them as a white person or them as a male versus someone like me who says, wow, there's like, I mean, there's a character in Blues for an Alabama Sky that kind of reminds me of Insecure. Like she's this awkward, really smart black girl. And I hadn't seen that before until I read this play. And I was like, oh, that resonates with me. And, you know, the feedback I got when I first started sort of touting this play 16 years ago was like, oh, that's not interesting. Like we're interested in this really radical expression of blackness, which is beautiful. And I love, you know, things from the black arts movement, but it's also like, well, but there's nuance in our community and there's, you know, and and not just our community within the Asian American community and the Latinx community, we have nuance and we have type and we have varying stories just like there are in the white community, but that's considered universal and and we have been put into really tiny boxes. And I think that, you know, there's such a pushback and again, the ability to sort of network and advocate um, that, that the discussion is changing a little bit. I'm always hesitant because I remember when Holly Berry won an Oscar and everyone was like, we've made it, you know, and then it was like, <laughs> oh wait, now it's 20 more years and they yeah. get Black Panther. Um, and so I'm always hesitant to be like, oh yeah, but I think, also, what's helpful is when the discussion changes, not just around what you see, but around who's holding power, where the money is going. You know, but in 96, August Wilson was talking about the way that we fund non-white theaters. And, you know, he said, this is what's happening. And in some ways, the situation has actually gotten worse. And so part of it for me is, you know, training actors and telling stories. Like, I don't even think about it necessarily as theater for social change or theater for social work the stories that I'm drawn to are stories about like the power of humanity and the, the sustainability of black culture, or the sustainability of, of, of a wide variety of people um, and about, you know, sort of that triumph story or stories that resonate with me. Um, and those, those stories are often the ones that, that I found and the people who are doing those stories are people who are already breaking convention um, and so that's, you know, it's, it's been intentional, but it's been intentional because that's the, it's, I'd say it's more on behalf of the people who, who gave me a chance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as I have gotten more of a platform, making sure that my eyes are always open to network and to celebrate the other people who are doing the same kind of work. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So Kaya, give us a snapshot of what you're doing today. Uh, like today, actual today, or <laughs> if it's like today, I am. <laughs> like, well, I mean, every day looks different. Um, that is actually yeah. a really entertaining way to do it too. To be like, well, today I'm doing sound checks and yeah, no, whatever, I mean, you know, <laughs> it it actually kind of is. So I'm finishing uh, grades and putting together a program for our senior <laughs> showcase. Uh, so we have, you know, like part of the reason I came to Charlotte was I like in my showcase right now. We are doing, um, you know, I think they're doing 14 or 15 plays and there's, there's a wide diversity of players, but like, 
have a diversity of students. My students speak Arabic, Spanish, and English this year. Um, they're doing Nambi Kelly. They're doing all of these things. And then um, I won't say the playwright because I, they're belo- it's a beloved male by many people. Um, and it's a script that often was studied when I was coming through. And I have two white men in my class who are doing it. And he was like, you know... This is just so like, I mean, it's a good script, but it's so, uh, and I want to do, and I was like, he, uh, he's also doing a Lydia Diamond script, this, this, uh, young man and something else. And I was just like, that's kind of my favorite thing about teaching is like, he's, it's, it's not him going, oh, I need to assemble a panel and think about divert. Like he's been exposed to it for four years. So his aesthetic is really broad. So he could be the white guy that goes onto a board and it's like, why aren't we doing, you know? And so I think that's really beautiful. So I'm putting together the program for that. Um, I'm finishing, I'm taking a trip to China for two weeks to look at how they do theater and film training in China and to see some theater over there. Um, so I'm going with a consortium of people who are not artists. Uh, there's like a banker and a financier, um, all from UNC Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to tour four cities in China. Uh, and then I get back, I'm home for a day. And then I go to do a reading at Playmakers in Chapel Hill, um, a new work uh, by a playwright named Jacqueline Lawton uh, about Toussaint's sister in Haiti. Um, and in uh, yeah, it's about her art and it's called Behold the Negress. So I do that. I'm back for a few days. And then I just arranged some work for... Um, the theater communications group I'll be going down as part of the black vitality network. Um, and I'm working with a theater in Durham called black ops that's run by a woman named Jamika Holloway Burrell. Um, and we are looking at commissioning a play and also doing a series of readings on the Clegg children's cycle. Um, and then next year I'll be in England doing a decolonizing theater conference, um, with some colleagues who are working at shaking, shaking up theater pedagogy uh, in England and also New Zealand and Australia, um, and looking at ways that we can we can shake up what's considered the canon. Uh, so that's at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama in London. Uh, so that's like actual in the next twenty four hours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then there's a talk tonight with my show about like Harlem Renaissance women. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so then and then uh, I I have a reassignment for the spring, and so I'm. I'm looking at doing three different shows um, as an actor, which I'm really excited about because I've been doing a lot of directing. And then in the fall, I'll be directing um, a show at a regional theater called Cape Fear in Fayetteville. Um, and then doing some advocacy work to the North Carolina Arts Council um, and and speaking at the North Carolina uh, theater communications group and speaking at the black theater network. Wow. So yeah. It's, so when do you have, uh, and I'm playing with my kids. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, when does, when does like, do you eat? Like what? <laughs> do you have uh, kind of How do you do all of that? <laughs> <laughs> I did like right before this interview. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so sleep is a little bit elusive. I have one of my kids is two and he's going through a developmental change. And so uh, there was a night a few nights ago where I was just like, nobody talked to me because we'd finished a really long dress rehearsal and, you know, sort of like normal theater stuff. There were transitions that weren't working and we were at the theater till 1130 and I came home and my son wasn't feeling well. And so he was up every hour and then I had to get up and go to a meeting at like 
eight o'clock in the morning and I was, and then we had a, the opening that night. And so by the end of opening, people were like, are you coming every night? And I was like, I don't want to see anybody for at least 12 hours. <laughs> um, but my kids, um, I have a, a partner who is, he's, you know, he's a great dad, um, my husband. And so he, um, he is home right now. That won't be the case in a couple of weeks, but we have, um, I have a network. Uh, so he has been amazing and, um, there have been periods where his work has taken over. And so I've pulled back and stayed home. I adjunct taught and I didn't do theater for two years when our kids were young, um, so that he could pursue his career. And so we've, we've kind of tried to figure out what that train shift looks like. Um, and then I, we don't have a lot of money, so I don't like, ideally I would have a nanny, uh, but we don't. (laughs) So, um, but what I do have is this group of black women that teach at my school, um, who understand how crazy the schedule can get. And so, uh, but who also have the type of flexibility I have around teaching. And so, um, we like yesterday, uh, my colleague's son, who's the same age as my son came over and they played at our house all day and then she took them to the park. Um, and we're in all different fields, but she's the author who's doing the talk tonight. And we also all have multiple children the same age. And so to have a group of black moms in the Academy, um, who are super supportive and are like, I can pick your kid up from rehearsal, uh, or, you know, we, we share like, here's babysitter list. Um, and then there's other parents in my theater department. And so that network has been key to my success. Um, and I make sure to say it in any production I do or any, um, work. And that's, that's kind of the work that doesn't get celebrated because it's not the, like, here's the show or here's the big paper or the article, but it's fundamental to making a lot of that change happen. Um, it's, it's, they're the people that get me, they get what I say, they get when I'm, I'm tired and I feel like a terrible mother today. Um, or, you know, I can write them and be like, Hey, I have three hours. Can we go to the park? Um, and also it, I mean, part of the reason we moved to Charlotte is my son was like, I don't see black people anymore. Cause I, um, I went to a faith-based school for my graduate studies program and also as part of a group called Mocha Moms. And so he saw black mothers all day long. And then we moved to San Diego and he didn't. And he was starting to have self-hate issues where he wanted his hair to be straight. He didn't like his skin color. Um, and since we've moved here and they've had a community that has loved them and supported them and also has like normalized, oh yeah, my mom's going on a book talk. You know, my mom's <laughs> doctor so-and-so. Mm-hmm. You know, my kids have had this really, I mean, there's things that they miss and there's things that I miss. Like I'm not there every week for lunches with them. Um, although I still like, there are times I make it a priority to be at certain school board meetings or to, you know, to do things that I can in my way. So I might not be able to like volunteer in the classroom, but I can arrange an architecture trip on campus. Um, and I'm on a a school policy board, but also that my kids think it's totally normal to know people who write anthologies about, you know, black women playwrights or, (laughs) or women in general or host something at a museum. And so it's a trade-off, but they've had some really incredible experiences. Um, and they have learned to think critically because it's of theater. Like I don't, I really can honestly say, I don't know any backstage babies who aren't really, really intelligent. And I think 
this world and the art form creates parents who teach children to think critically and who stress empathy and who stress understanding other people's stories. Um, and so my kids are part of this really beautiful community, both in the academy and in theater, where they just get to know these really phenomenal families. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. And they, I mean, they're fortunate, but again, I think it's, it was intentional on your part to make sure that you got them yourself and your kids into a place where that community was available. Um, and you've clearly been intentional about like making it work and making yourself also a really valuable part of that community. Yeah, I've been, I've been really blessed. Like for me, it was also important that they, um, not be defined by like MTV's version of what Mm -hmm. black people are or Latinx people are. And so they, you know, like I said, they're, they're like, we have dinners and three people will talk about the books they've written or there's an engineer, you know, uh, we're really fortunate that one of our friends is a black engineer who also has a, he and his wife run a hostel off the Appalachian trail. So my kids last summer got to go to the Appalachian trail for a week for free (laughs) and talk about, you know, my son's really into math and science, which, has nothing to do with me because I don't understand. (laughs) But he has this, you know, guy with locks that looks like him who's an engineer and, and they also like love nature together. And so for me, it's, it, it kind of comes back to the same intention of theater is how do I show all of these facets of, of the community and how do I introduce both the wider society and also my children to these stories. And so, you know, my son's really into like the gender thing and boys and girls right now. And, you know, the boys team and da da da. And we went to her story at the Levine museum because his best friend's mom was curating Mm -hmm. a talk. And he, I mean, he's nine and he asked, you know, is the problem society in general or is it the male gender? Because I think we should be equal, but I don't know what it means when girls say like girls rule and how is that fair? And, you know, he asked them really good questions and she answered him so well. And she didn't, she also knows how to talk to him and she didn't back down and, you know, talked about inequality, but he's thinking about that kind of stuff. And I love that we can talk about that now because of the community that we're really blessed with. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also in a way that it informs my art. So my cast was able to go, into a class on um, black girlhood in America. And they read an excerpt from their script, but they also participated in that class. And so there's, I mean, part of the reason I got into academia. So I was, I was an actor for 10 years before I went back to grad school, um, partially because I had a son and I was flying around the country shooting commercials. And I was like, this is probably not feasible for forever. (laughs) Um, But also I was teaching um, homeless and foster youth. And I was teaching in um, juvenile facility, juvenile hall, and I really loved it. Like I loved, I loved teaching, um, and so I went back and got an MFA. Um, and like I said, I got it at a faith-based school, and I was I'm pretty liberal, so I was nervous about how that would go. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing I learned there that I loved was I had teachers who put in their syllabi, "If you feel uncomfortable with any of the content, come talk to us afterwards." And I'd never had that permission before, especially as a woman, like my first class in undergrad, I was told to be in my bra and underwear doing this really rough scene. 
And it was me and the only other kid of color um, who now is like, I think he's doing Mama Mia at East West Players. Like he's amazing. <laughs> and we were just talking about this on Facebook because I was like, his name's Danny. And I was like, Danny, I just wrote an article about how traumatic that was because everybody else is doing like the Heidi Chronicles. And we got this play called Beirut, which is beautiful and about Mm -hmm. HIV. But like I was 18 coming from North Carolina. (laughs) um, And then every scene for that semester, I was like a prostitute or a maid. And I was finally like, what's going on? And my teacher, who was a white male, was like, "Uh, I'm preparing you for the type of work you're going to be doing. And that was so hurtful. And it also informed like what I've said no to since then. And I had these teachers who said to me, like, you can say no. Um, and in fact, I fought with them on my senior project because I was pregnant and doing wit and they wanted me to shave my head. And I was like, this is three days. I'm getting ready to graduate. I'm using a bald cap. I'm saying no. And I, I used their own words. I was like, you taught me to say no. Um, and, but being in a school where they felt like it was a mission um, to train artists to go help other people, that's something that I've used in teaching my students now, like it's not about them just getting jobs. It's about who they become as people. Um, it's about what, what, like this art is a gift. Your talent is a gift. What do you go and do with it? But also ever since I've gone through grad school in my syllabus, it, it's explicitly stated that this is your body as an actor. Um, and you can't tell me that you don't want to do it because you want to be the pretty, pretty princess. But if there's something that makes you physically uncomfortable, come and talk to me and we'll talk about it. And then if we need to change the scene, we will, because you need to start thinking about this as your, your body. And I think when we saw me too, like I wasn't surprised because we were trained to say yes to everything and to be grateful for every opportunity. Um, and so for me, like when I teach, it's really important that I'm teaching my students, especially those who might be vulnerable, um, that this is your body and this is your career. And there are consequences. I've lost money for saying I won't do this nude scene. It seems gratuitous and out of place. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really happy with my career. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't have anything out there that I'm like, oh, God, please don't let that come to light. Um, and so... Yeah, I think, I feel like it's, I, I, um, in fact, I signed a contract this morning. Um, I'm signing on as an EDI consultant with a um, theatrical intimacy education and talking about how we think about bodies of color on stage, especially in terms of sexuality and physical contact. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, the history our country has of over-sexualizing and eroticizing certain groups of people uh, on stage. And so what does that mean when you choreograph intimacy for people? Um, and it's also been something I've been really careful with for my students. So I'm, I'm gratified to see again, that that's becoming part of the national conversation. Um, <clears throat> and it's also one of those things that I was like, well, duh, like, I'm in for a while. Um, like clearly this is a problem. Um, so, so yeah. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about a vivid memory that you have of the theater? Uh, oh, wow. Um, I know there's always so many, but like, is there one that just popped in? Yeah. Asked? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm trying to think if it's like a moment I taught or a moment that, um, well, okay. So here's one. This was not me personally being on stage, but I went into, I've been, this third pregnancy was the first time I haven't been in production while pregnant. So I've been in wit both times 
pregnant, um, which is great because uh, ovarian cancer and pregnancy are very similar. And so uh, not that that is great, but like I could easily conceal my pregnancy. Um, but then I was also directing Susical, uh, which was the first musical I used to teach at Cal State San Marcos that we had done. And it was my son's first show. And I went into labor two weeks early with um, my second son and I'd worked on the show for two years. And so I finished dress rehearsal while in labor in a bed at the hospital. And I was pissed. They wouldn't let me. I was like, I, I've given birth. I know this will take a few hours. I just <laughs> want to finish this scene. <laughs> I was hormonal. Um, but I, like my, the, I, some of those students are now working and they're like, I remember when you directed the show from <laughs> the hospital bed. And I was like, labor takes a long time. Um, and so, uh, and then we went back because I wasn't going to miss my son's opening three days after my son was born. So my infant saw his first show at three days old. And it was, I mean, it was insane. I was like nursing at intermission. Uh, my husband was holding this newborn in the hallway. I was like, do not get near him. Don't touch him with your germy hand. <laughs> like they were in a separate room. But like I saw the show. I got to tell the cast congratulations. And I was like looking back. But again, like Delicia had talked to me about having a three day old at a dress rehearsal and being in her bathrobe and breastfeeding. So I was like, okay, can it, I don't recommend it. Uh, but it, I knew it could be done and I was, I was healthy and I got to sort of do that. So that, that is probably one of the most vivid memory. And at the time it just felt like getting things done. And now I look back and I'm like, that was, that was a lot. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of like super so, yeah. level there. <laughs> But like after you give birth, like I, I honestly, I think if the show had opened a month after the baby was born, I wouldn't have been able to do it. But there's a period for three or four days after you give birth where you really are high on hormones and like the baby's not awake as much. <laughs> They're very sleepy the first two days and you're sort of like, yay. Like my friend just finished her dissertation and defended like a week and a half after having a baby. And now she's exhausted because it's like yeah. a month into it, you're like. I hate you all. Why did I do this again? <laughs> but the first couple days, you're like, yes. Um, so yeah, that was my big memory. <laughs> Good one. I like that one a lot. <laughs> yeah. um, what is the most important lesson that you've learned in the theater? To have, um, to make space and create opportunity because people did it for me. Mm. so like kind of that it's not about which is like so antithetical to the business of acting but it's really not about me at the end of the day like people worked really hard and sacrificed uh you know ancestors and family and also like theater family has sacrificed so that things could be easier and and that I would have more opportunity and I absolutely feel like it is my job and my responsibility to also make sure that I then create that space for other people. Mm -hmm. um, thank you for saying that. I feel like I really needed that reminder today. Um, oh, yeah. So thanks. <laughs> I just, I think I feel my, uh, the last couple of days, like ego has just come in and has been trying to take over and, you know, trying to make it all about me. Um, which yeah. Really, um, you can't create from that space. Um, 
And I know you I can't, but like, that's where all the funding comes from, right? I like know. there's no funding for like, <laughs> Hey, look at like, even, I mean, this is the thing I'm on a commission right now. That's talking about like ways to open up spaces and funding to like broaden the community. And it's like the way you do it isn't bringing more like faces of color into these giant organizations. It's looking at the, you know, the church or the after school group that's doing it for 60 bucks. Mm-hmm. But like in order to get big funding, you have to be like my podcast reaches 50 million people or like, it's, and so it's like the funding comes from self-promotion. So it's really hard, Yeah, you know, like my headshot and my, you know, and so it's like, yeah. it's totally a <laughs> yeah, conundrum of like. Balance is weird. Um, the, yeah. the thing that helps me with it, and I don't know if this will be helpful for you, but I think of myself as the, as a conduit. Like I'm just one little piece yeah. of the pipeline. Um, and so when I'm actually doing my work and being of service, I have to think about the pieces of the pipeline that came before and that are going to come after me. Um, but in the self-promotion piece of it, I think about how, how my piece of the pipeline is shaping the work and is making change. Um, right. but yeah, it is a weird, like you have to, sh- like, you have to shift your mind back and forth between, like, I have to, I have to be in a space of gratitude and a space of, um, of, you know, of service of it's not about me in order to do my best work, but then in order to like tell people about my work <laughs> and get paid for my work. That's weird. That's a weird yeah. thing. <laughs> you get used yeah, to no, it, it's... but man, it's a real, it's a real shift. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. What is a challenge that you're facing right now? I'm kind of over educating people who have had the opportunity to be educated. Um, And so I think a lot of EDI work goes to people who already live in a space of a lot of privilege um, and want to be spoon fed um, and then sort of want to be like, oh, I don't know how to find these playwrights or these directors or these actors um, or these board members. Um, And so I am all about like, let's make a difference and do things, but I'm also kind of over people who aren't willing to, to put their positions of power on the line and be uncomfortable because anytime you talk about inequality and especially race and gender, you are putting yourself in a vulnerable position and, and making, and it's uncomfortable. Like I would love to just do acting and not talk about any of the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the world I was born into doesn't allow that. Um, and it, uh, so I, I, I think what I'm kind of over right now is people who say that they want change, um, but aren't willing to put their power at jeopardy because the people who you see most often doing this work are the ones who can least afford to. So they're the ones in the most vulnerable positions sometimes at whatever rank they're at. Um, And so I really, I mean, one of the reasons I like the term decolonizing is it's looking at who's in power versus like, we have a 50, we have an exact representation of our population, but it's like, no, who's making the decisions, who's gatekeeping, who's deciding whose work is valid. And, you know, you, you don't just get to celebrate like one and call yourself good. Um, um, and so I think, but, but the, the structurally things are so messed up. Like the system is so messed up. Like a friend just called me and she's on a panel that's evaluating like 
people who are getting funding for playwriting. And she's one of two women and the only person of color. And so they're reading stories and they're talking and writing feedback about what resonates. Mm. And it's like, well, of course this work isn't resonating with you, you know, or how is this, how is this equitable? And especially, you know, I live in a place that has a really diverse population um, and we don't have enough state funding, but we have some. And it's like, well, all the, like we're, it's taxpayer money or, you're, you know, you're saying you're serving a community. And when I look at your community, I don't see age representation. I definitely don't see socioeconomic representation. Um, and I really don't see racial diversity. Um, and you giving free tickets is not how you get young people of color to the theater. Like there are plenty of people of color with money. Um, it's, it's looking at who is making decisions. And, and that has been Sometimes that feels like butting your head against a wall. Yeah. <laughs> so you're just like, duh, people. And then people talk about like, oh, retention or how do we keep audience members or how do we keep staff or, you know, and it's just like, well, who, you know, when you get people there, how are you creating a space where if they're the new person, they have equal, like you're giving them a platform to speak and, and creating a safe and I mean that in the terms of like they don't feel like their their livelihoods at Jeopardy if they if they are honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know how to solve that other than I mean my goal this year is to work a lot more with um, Black organizations and other organizations with people of color who've been doing it. And then if people want to step alongside in that work, I'm all for it. But mm-hmm. as I'm limiting the amount of times I'm going to places that haven't already started doing the work. Mm, yeah, that's fair. Yep. Yep. Um, and just to clarify for anyone who's listening, I'll, I'll say it at the beginning of the episode too. Um, but EDI is equity, diversity, and inclusion. Yeah. Thank you. With the phrase. Yeah. Or the acronym, yeah. the letters. Um, I'm having yeah. flashbacks to a party that I was at this, um, <clears throat> I was chatting with a director that I'd never talked to before. Um, and he, first of all said like that he's so good at producing and he's really good at finding money and getting shows funded. And then a few minutes later into the conversation, he was talking about a show that he really wanted to produce. And I don't even remember what show it was, but it's about, um, trans women. And he mm-hmm. was like, I really, you know, I, I really love the show. I'm really excited. I'm trying to get it into like one of the seasons cause I really want to direct it. And I was like, he was like, and he actually said, I'm probably not the best person to direct it. Uh, because I'm, you know, and literally like, because I'm a white guy, like a straight white guy. <laughs> um, and I was like, well, right. why are you, why are you directing it? Couldn't you produce it and hire a, a trans woman to, right. to direct it? He was like, yeah, I could, but then I wouldn't be able to direct it. <laughs> right. No. And that's the thing. Is the, I almost the do my idea drink of, <laughs> Yeah. But see, and that for me, when you talk about like, what's frustrating, like that is at least every other day for me is that type of conversation, which is like, no, we want equality. We value diversity. We value this. And then it's like, well, are you giving up your seat at that table that you're at? Are you giving up that board? Are you not reaching out, but like, what are you doing that's personally sacrificial? Because you're asking all of these people to sacrifice their time, their headspace, they're mostly uncompensated because that's like the nice extra 
And so, you know, when I talk about people who haven't already done the work, one of my things that is really hard for me because I'm female uh, and I wasn't trained this way is to start asking for money for my work. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like I will, you know, and I've talked about this with other female scholars who are like, oh yeah, I'll do that for free. But if you want six hours of my time, like you need to pay. And then also what are the consequences? So if you say you value diversity and you're writing a grant or you're on a grant making, what's the consequence for the theater that gets the money and then doesn't follow through on the diversity aspect? Mm. Because if it's just a no, 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 like you don't do that when they don't follow through on the financial aspect or their audience goals, like you, there are teeth to that. And until there are teeth and until there's real sacrifice, like I'm not interested because what you're saying is I want you to see me as a good person. I mean, it's sort of like saying, look at my black friends over here who like me and agree with me. (laughs) Um, You know, but until you're willing to say, you know, I really want to do this, but I know that this space, like I I can do something to help this person in this space. I can be quiet and give them a voice or them a platform. Um, I'm going to look extra hard to find this. And you actually don't have to look extra hard, but like I'm going (laughs) to create the space to do this Mm -hmm. and, and like use the power that I have, like until that happens, then I don't want to hear how you want to get this done because what you want is the glory for doing something that people in your circle think is amazing and liberal. Um, I mean, that's just and like I'm back just, to the ego question too. It's like, how can yeah. I make my piece of the pipeline look really good? Oh, by directing a piece, by, by putting my name on this piece that is like diverse, right? Right. right. Um, instead of allowing yourself to be the conduit and allowing yourself to really focus on what comes before and after. Oh, it's frustrating. I, I like that as a, as a personal boundary to set though. Um, like, yes, I will come and do this EDI work with your organization show me what, what steps you've already done. Like what foundation have you already laid? Um, yeah. So that I know. Or what are you willing to pay me? Or yeah, exactly. Like Like, pay me anything and I'll come, but. (laughs) Right. No. And I mean, I haven't done that and that's not for like, I work, I mean, I, I, I go to this really great socially justice oriented, wonderful church and they do free after school programming and they do this thing called freedom school that happens around Charlotte where it's a free six-week academic program to close, you know, the the learning gap that happens over the summer. Um, and it's six weeks of programming. And I do a ton of stuff there because they're doing the work already, you know? And so, like, for me, and that's something that I can't... It's not as big as, like, you know, if I were to go to the National Theater or something. But for me, that's valuable. Like, that's where my value lies. And, and there's been a couple of things. Actually, uh, my pastor's this really amazing woman. And she's like, you can't expect to find your value in people who don't share your values. (laughs) It's like, Oh, that makes sense. So like there's things I have to do because of commodification. Um, and I need to make money and I need to be legible across a wide variety, but then it's like, well, what do I value and who do I value that I want to see value in me? And I'm not going to look for value in people who don't share my values. (laughs) Um, and that was beautiful phrase. That was life changing. Um, and then the other one came from our EDI office. There's a grad student that works there that was like, yeah, diversity is the commodification of bodies. (laughs) She's like, talk to me about equity and talk to me about ways that we can not even inclusion, but like disrupt the power structure and decolonize. And then I'm on board. Don't talk to me about diversity. Yeah. And I was like, yup. (laughs) Yep. 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 Cause diversity is like showing that you have the numbers and the percentages, right? 
<sighs> yeah, like it's um there's this really great uh so one of the the my colleagues at um Royal Central just published an article um about the National Theater came out with a a season that's all men. Uh there's literally two yes. creative female roles and like one of them is the wife. Um and they're doing two plays about racism, but he was talking about and this is like straight white male uh, who like, so I'm like, clearly like the work is being done by all sorts of people. Um, but like, you know, he said the one that, um, you can't just go by the numbers because then if you say like, well, 14% of our population in England is black, we're doing one black playwright. Uh, he's like, anytime you do that one, women of color, black women are going to get the short shrift because you lose intersectionality and you lose nuance. Secondly, the two plays we're doing about racism are racism over there and long ago. So they're doing like Master Harold and the Boys and another play. And it's like when we have Debbie Tucker Green and all of these other wonderful playwrights that are writing about it here and now. Um, and then he was like, it's not going to come from the numbers. It's going to come from a shift in power. And I was like, yeah. And it's this like, it's four paragraphs or five paragraphs, and he just lays it out beautifully. And I was like, yes, this is, this is it. Like, you can't just look at, well, we have, you know, a 20% population. So we're, we're doing this much. It's like, no, like what, what are the stories and the moments and, and how are you looking at what has validity and, and what is standard and what's well-written? Like, what's your criteria and who's making the decision? And when that conversation happens, they'll start to be changed. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Super powerful. Um, whew, okay. <laughs> um, oh my gosh, ah, a little bit of a shift here. Um, what is yeah. something that you do in your theatrical work, whether it is the EDI work that you do with your students or performance or directing, um, that if everyone applied that same strategy to our lives, it would make our lives better. Uh, understanding where your character's coming from oh. and understanding their, yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's the EDI stuff. I think it's listening. So you have to listen to your partner. Oh, no, I'm going to change it. So okay. the biggest acting uh, thing that I, so those are important, but the biggest thing that they do on stage, um, and this is from practical handbook, it's from Mehmet. So, um, but is, it's always about your partner. Like, what are you, what are you trying to do to the other person? Who's, how does this affect the other person? And I think, um, yeah, that and understanding, like as an actor, if you're doing a good job, you always have to understand where somebody's coming from. Um, it doesn't mean you agree with them, um, but you, you try to understand your character's motivation. And I think if we could do that, I don't think it means we'd all be nicer to each other, but I think, um, it would help discourse um, and dialogue. And in some ways it would help because it would be like, no, this person's motivation for doing this is to create strife so that they can obtain power. And then we could have that conversation. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Do you have um, like a, a tip for how we can do that? Like, is there something that's worked really well for you on stage or in your own life? Uh, so understanding history like i so this women's group that i talk about a lot of them are really rooted in history and theory and um 
and looking for ways that things outside of my discipline. So I do theater, but I've been reading a lot of decolonization work um, with people in Africana studies and English. There's a whole decolonizing movement in literature. So not even calling it English because then English filters through what people have thought is worthy to be translated into English. Mm. Um, And so thinking about how all of those things play into my acting choices and then understanding the history of people. I mean, this play we're doing right now, like literally in almost every line, our dramaturg packet um, was written by uh, the playwright and dramaturg I was talking about earlier, Jacqueline Lawton, and it's 163 pages. Um, So it's like three times as long as the play (laughs) uh, because like every, every line has some element of history in it. I mean, it's just, and, and in a really fun way, like, there's jokes about Langston Hughes making fun of the people who go to his parties. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think understanding understanding the history of our country, understanding the history of how societies evolved would be really, really helpful. So like right now we're talking about the Harlem Renaissance. And I, I said last night at a talk back, I, t- I, t- I teach um, African-American theater. And one of the things we read about is this March in 1917 in New York where 10,000 black men, women, and children marched silently for, I forget if it was six to 10 miles to protest. There had been riots by white people all over the country, killing, like literally in one of the riots, I think it was in St. Louis, they were bashing black children against light poles. They were setting black communities on fire. There was this massive lynching. and so these these people dressed in their Sunday best and marched marched through New York. I was like, and I stopped my class. I was like, first of all, like they dressed the children in white and the kids marched up front ahead of their parents silent. That alone is like a huge mm-hmm. accomplishment. I don't know how that happened. I can't get my kids <laughs> in white for like four minutes and never mind like them being silent. So when we talk about feet, but it was basically, I was like, this was the first Black Lives Matter march. And out of that movement came the souls of black folks, which talked about how black people, like literally explaining to people, black people have souls. When you lynch us, you're lynching a human being. Um, We have art, we have music, we are valuable. Um, And then there's this series of work called The Lynching Place that was curated by this amazing lighting designer, uh, who's also a scholar named Kathy Perkins. And the whole reason those plays were written by black women was so that people would stop killing young black boys. And I taught this play last year and I almost broke down crying because my class was majority African-American and I was looking at these young people and I said, I wish I had to explain to you why that was important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was, I think it was the week we had had four police shootings. And so I didn't have to explain like, here's why it was important for black mothers to get white mothers to understand why their son's lives mattered. Out of that birthed, you know, these books that led to people going to parties together that led to the Harlem Renaissance. And I argue that we're in another time like that where there's a need to sort of show the Black experience, to shout about Black pain um, and brutality, um, and, and to talk about sort of how people are being treated inhumanely. And out of that is coming this body of work that's also celebrating black life Um, and not just black life. Like I work with, um, uh, I have a colleague who does East West players and they're, 
Like there's some amazing stuff happening in Asian American theater and Latinx theater um, in indigenous theater, like around the country. And it's this thing of like, like we're, we're proclaiming our humanity and our rightful place in, in American theater um, and in American arts and film. Um, and I think if people understood history, they wouldn't ask stupid questions like why can't Hamilton have white people? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like why are that, you know, like when that happened and people were like, they could never do that with white actors. And, you know, all of us sent in these casting calls that were like, all of these casting calls are asking for Caucasians. <laughs> this is not abnormal. Um, and so I think because people don't understand um, the history of the country, it's really hard for them to have a discourse about why certain things are. You know, here's the history. It didn't end with, you know, and, and a big part of that is like advocating at, you know, my son's in elementary school. So advocating that like black history actually gets taught that mm-hmm. different perspectives are taught around the country that we don't label like they did in the textbook. Uh, people who were enslaved as economic migrants, um, you know, cause like it's, it's horrific and almost funny, except that that's going to shape a future of the voting public. Yeah. Um, and so the erasure of history really leads to, people not understanding what's come before and then they don't recognize it when history starts to repeat itself again. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you believe that theater should be universally accessible to every human on the planet? If they want it. Um, I think theater sometimes thinks of itself as I, well, here's two things. I think what we think of as theater is changing. Um, and I think people have to be really open to that. So I think there's going to be more digital engagement with theater. Um, I think the way audiences interact with theater. So if you mean theater, that doesn't mean going into a fancy theater and paying a lot for tickets um, or making tickets free, uh, then yes. I think if we're talking about having theater come in all forms and come to communities, uh, and having communities participate in theater, yes, I believe every child should be able to do theater education. Um, but I also think that theater thinks it's more available and open than it is, and I think that needs to change too. Um, yeah, yeah. Why? Why do you think every like every kid should have access to theater education? Uh, so I taught a class called theater in the arts at Cal state in California. And I taught it with this really badass woman who played saxophone for 40 years and then went back to Harvard and got her MED. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used to joke cause she was like, I'm older. She's younger. She, I, she was Jewish. I was black. We, um, you know, like completely different backgrounds, but we taught the four arts. So, uh, we taught music, theater, dance, and visual arts to people who are becoming teachers. And so we taught alternative assessment, like here's how you use a sculpture instead of a test. Um, Here's how you teach fractions using dance. Um, And kids, like it's been proven that kids uh, do better on tests. Like they raised standardized tests for a school that had a 50% homeless population by putting... um, an art, uh, a teaching artist in the classroom with this classroom teacher twice a week. You know, it's like, that's a super cheap fix. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> because people, people learn better when they're having fun. So if I'm teaching literature and we're all becoming the straw house 
and we're doing, you know, the, the, uh, oh God, what is it? There's this great book that tells the three little pigs from the wolf's perspective. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the true story of the three little pigs, I think is what it's The true story. Yeah. Yeah. And so like you think about what that, that book is doing sociology, it's doing empathy. It's, it's talking about the criminal justice system. Like it's doing all of these different things. It's really talking about perspective and whose story are we telling? And when I taught it as a teaching artist, the kids would physically embody it. And so none of them forgot the story. And even when we taught this arts and learning class on teaching evals at the end of the year, it was so funny because they'd be like, this was my fun class. Now we covered four different arts and how you integrate them. The kids had to write a play for third graders and perform it for like 700 third graders. So they wrote cast, costumed, built props for their play in two weeks because then we were doing all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And they were like, yeah, this was the class where we didn't have to work. <laughs> <laughs> we just did fun stuff. Meanwhile, we were talking about teaching methodologies and mm-hmm. assessment and all of that. But it's like, well, like when we talk about decolonization, the like prove to me that you know this by me standing in front of you and you writing it all down and you coming away with your four talking points is such a like colonized Western way of working Mm -hmm. versus like the circle or nurturing or, and not that you don't have assessments, but like, let's look at the wide variety of assessment. And when you think about what theater does for students, so they're doing character analysis, they're understanding story structure, they're understanding context, history. Like there's so much that if they're building a set, they're doing a ton of math. There's so much that goes into that. Um, They're understanding different points of view, even if they don't agree with them. They're learning to argue for their points. They're learning, they're memorizing, Um, you know, all of these things, you know, because my son comes home and he has to memorize these sections of text and I'm like, or you could do a story and that would be so much more valuable. Uh, And then also we're teaching them to be human, you know, like how to not how to be human, but how to understand the human condition. And it's a way in. And that's, that's where I think it's really important that we broaden what we think of this theater. Cause I don't think going into um, an economically disadvantaged school and teaching Shakespeare is the only way to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like we should go into that prison and do August Wilson. Cause he's literally talking about the situation that people are in and it's lyrical and it's all the things that people, and I, you know, I like Shakespeare, but like he's yeah. doing, the same thing and he's you know using this amazing language and story and it's epic and it's all of these things and why not why not give people a reflection that they can see um I spoke so yeah uh, last week maybe I don't know time what even is time I don't know um but I spoke with Bridget McCarthy who does she does theater circle work in prisons and with um, incarcerated populations and marginalized populations outside of prisons as well. Um, and that is also really incredible work. And I think it speaks to what you're talking about as well, where go like go to the people who need, well, I mean, everyone needs expression, everyone needs yeah. creativity, um, but go to the people who aren't getting it, who are being un- underserved in that way. Um, and yeah. put them and center them, right. Put them in power. Um, right. And I think August Wilson is a great step to that, but even, even going even further is to just remove, remove the pre-written script completely and see what happens just with the creators who are in the room. Um, yeah. Really, really that's bad. what we did with playwrights project. Like mm-hmm. there's this group playwrights, but I mean, that's where I went into school and it was, it was, empowering people to structure their own stories as plays. And then they would see them perform by professional actors. 
I mean, it was, it was life changing and incredible, like more for us probably. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Cause like playwrights was the place that I, you know, and again, it was founded by a mother who was a fourth grade teacher who loved theater. And then she founded this huge, like now it's a huge organization and she fostered other administrators coming up and they're like, a lot of the female directors and playwrights. In fact, Alicia, who was that artistic director, started off stage managing for them. And then mm. I got my first directing gig through them because they do a young playwrights festival. She got one of her first jobs in San Diego through them. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the kind of like, yeah, center it, do the work. There's, um, there's birth justice. So like we're starting to talk again about maternal health among African-American populations. And years ago, I went to this... Um, conference that was uh, black arts, black diaspora art as social change. And there was a woman who works in the United States in Senegal, helping black women do birth story circles. And sometimes medical practitioners are invited to participate by sitting on the outside, Mm. but it's helping women share their stories of, of birth and trauma. Frankly, if you're a black woman, like Mm -hmm. most black women I know have a traumatic element of not being believed or listened to like the first two times I gave birth, nobody believed me that I was about to give birth. <laughs> so I gave birth once without a doctor being present because they didn't believe that I was in labor uh, or that I was you know, about to give birth. Uh, and they apologized later. And so what she does is she, she uses theatrical technique and the storytelling method to one sort of give women some relief uh, from not being listened to. Um, and then two to, to share with practitioners, like this is the patient experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. It becomes so profound sometimes. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I mean, and there's like really amazing women doing a lot. Of stuff. Yeah, I know. I know. That's why this podcast exists. I was like, incredible stuff. we need to like amplify it and share it make sure we all know. And, um, and then we all feel empowered also to like be the one to start the work or, or continue it or grow it. Right. Um, yeah, or partner with each other yeah. and collaborate and do stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Kaya, will you please plant a seed in the yeah. minds or spirits or all three of everyone who's listening to this podcast today? Um, I would say you're not alone. <laughs> I mean, the thing I told the, like, I feel like Sometimes, you know, you were saying it too, it gets really frustrating uh, and you feel like I'm doing this work and I'm banging my head against a wall or, you know, I'm taking care of my parents or my children and I'm so tired and like, there's, there's a community out there for you. And if you haven't found it or if they're not picking up the phone right now, like it gets better, (laughs) which is what I told the seventh graders, but it does, like, I feel like it really, if that's what somebody needs to hear, like there's, there's teams of us just waiting to work with you. Mm. Awesome. Good reminder. Thank you. <laughs> so if so, yeah, no, this is great. I know. Right. It's, this is like so fun. I love these conversations so much. Um, well, that was the last actual like question question. Um, if someone who's okay. listening today wants to contact you, if they want to learn more about your work, maybe they want to hire you for something. Um, what is the Yay. best way to, you know, right? <laughs> What's the best way to get in touch with you? Um, so I I tweet. I've just started. I'm still sort of figuring it out, but I tweet at Kaya Dunn, which is uh, at K A J A 
D-U-N-N. So that's a really good, and and that out of all of my social media is most about my work. Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, you can also find me through the UNCC, uh, that's University of North Carolina, Charlotte website. Um, and that will direct you to my other contact information as well. Perfect. Well, thank you again so much for taking the time today to share your experience and your expertise and your energy with me and with everyone who's listening. Um, and thank you for the work that you do in the world and for, you know, fostering growth where, where you're doing it. Um, it's, I mean, like I'm, I'm at a loss for words. It's so vital. It's so important. Um, and thank you for carrying that weight and doing it. Oh, well, thanks for this podcast. Like, it's such a great idea and I can't wait to listen to other, but like, I love, yeah, I just, I was like, what a great idea. And I just, <laughs> yeah, it makes it easier when you know there's other people, you know, like, I mean, of course I'm aware there's other people, but like just hearing other people and being able to cheer on other people, mm-hmm. um, is yeah. And like just celebrating badass women is such a great thing. (laughs) Always. Every day of my life. (laughs) Thanks for listening today. If you want to chat about what you've heard, learn about upcoming episodes before they drop, or simply say hello, follow Find Your Light Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at FYL Podcast, or on Facebook at Find Your Light Podcast. Take a second right now to hit that subscribe button and tell your friends how awesome you think this podcast is so they can subscribe too. I'm always hoping to have conversations with folks who have smart thoughts about living an aligned life via theater. People of color and people with disabilities are especially encouraged to reach out. If you or someone you know would make a great guest, email the Find Your Light team, which of course is currently me and my cat, Subi. You can reach us at Subi at emilystamets.com. If you'd like to share your thoughts and stories on the podcast in our Voices of the Ensemble segment, leave a message at 858-333-7713 or email an audio file to podcast at emilystamets.com. Until next time, stand confidently center stage and enjoy your show.